This is part two of this two-part conversation with Chiquita Brooks-Lashur. Presenting Danforth Dialogues, a monthly podcast on leadership hosted by Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. This month, we are pleased to have Chiquita Brooks-Lashur, Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. With more than two decades of experience in healthcare policy and administration, Administrator Brooks Lashore is the first black woman to head CMS. She has held a number of key positions in government over her career, including serving as the Deputy Director for Policy at the Center for Consumer Information and Insurance Oversight in CMS during the Obama administration. She was nominated to head CMS by President Joe Biden in early 2021 and officially assumed her role in May 2021. She is graduate of Princeton University and holds a master's degree in public policy from Georgetown University. Among other topics, Dr. Montgomery Rice and Administrator Brooks Lashore will explore the role of the public sector in helping to expand health equity in underserved communities in the post-COVID era. Now, for this month's episode, here is Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. So when you look out over the next few years, what do you see as the top three priorities for CMS? So we have um, several uh, issues really on our horizon, one of which is um, really implementing the Medicare prescription drug law. So uh, after um, the Medicare has covered prescription drugs for about 20 years, and we have just gotten um, the ability to negotiate prescription drugs in the Medicare program. And along with that are new changes that are uh, coming on the pike, down the pike. Now, let me interrupt you for one second, because most people wouldn't understand that you didn't have the ability to negotiate this. You were paying for them, weren't you? We were. (laughs) So so why wouldn't you have the ability to negotiate the price? This is one that I think there has been strong support um, to make sure that Medicare could get the best price for um, both the people who are served by our programs and for the federal government. So we are really excited now to have that authority. Okay. (laughs) I've just seen it kind of obvious to me, but hey, who am I? Go ahead. (laughs) Number two. Um, secondly, we're very focused. I, I told you how many millions of people are covered by our programs. That's because Medicaid has become the big M in CMS. Yeah. There are 92 million people who are covered by Medicaid and CHIP. And um, what we're in the process of uh, getting out of the public health emergency. And during that period of time, um, states really didn't do what we call redeterminations, which is check to see whether or not people were still eligible for Medicaid. Well, we're now in that process where things are ending, where states are going to start checking um, whether people are eligible for Medicaid. We call it redeterminations. We call it renewals. What I will say is make sure you stay on Medicaid coverage or transition to ACA coverage, marketplace coverage, or employer-based coverage. And this is um, 
going to be a huge effort over the next year or so across the country where states are going to be talking to people and saying, get sending out their mail and asking them to um, verify their income and where they live to see whether they are still eligible. We're already seeing in some states that have started this process where people are no longer eligible for Medicaid. And a big issue is making sure that people get and open their mail. The turnaround times can be extremely short. And I don't know about you, but sometimes you don't open things as fast. Are we using something other than snail mail? So we are letting uh, uh, organizations text and email, okay, great, and we're great. seeing um, more. Uh, there, we are already seeing that people are responding to texts more, but a lot of this is done by the mail, and so we've been encouraging people to make sure that they update their information so that their states have their most current address. Um, but this is going to be an all hands on deck. Uh, effort over the last next year. And that is um, an area of uh, real focus. And then I would say our third priority is back to what we were talking about, of really embedding health equity across our programs. So we have a great deal of work that is done every day. I just met with our team um, in the Atlanta regional office and everyone went around the room and I thought, we just have, we're everywhere um, in so many places that you wouldn't even think about making sure facilities are safe. Again, focus on making sure we embed health equity. That's our, our primary. Well, those are, those are three heavy lifts. Uh, and particularly with uh, the emergency, public health emergency, and then I think it, that the redeterminations is going to be an opportunity, an opportunity to raise awareness about options for care and hopefully a, an additional way to engage the American public. So uh, how about something controversial? Hmm. We've been hearing a lot about work requirements. Can you give us a perspective that the American public should be perhaps looking at this, the lens we should be looking at work requirements with? So I would say if you think about, again, what we've been through as a country, the uh, biggest lesson to me is how important it is for everyone to have health care coverage. And there have been times where We've seen work requirements before um, and other barriers to care. And what happens is not only are the people who are subject to work requirements affected, we actually affect even the populations that are exempted. So when you think of, for example, um, in one state uh, who was worried about work requirements, it was actually people with disabilities. I was talking to a, a sister who was talking about her brother and saying, he's going to qualify, but I'm unsure about how what paperwork I need to fill out. And so it hurts everyone when we set up barriers to care. The other thing that I would say is that we know that the vast majority of people who are eligible for Medicaid are, are working. working. <laughs> so we know they are. And what has happened, we had a state that implemented work requirements. People who were working and qualified ended up losing coverage and getting sick and then being unable to work. So if our goal is, which I think we all share, having a healthy workforce and making sure that people can live their best lives, setting up barriers to care is not the approach that I, 
the administration would support. And it certainly isn't borne out by what we've seen in history when um, work requirements and other barriers have yeah. been set up. We, we do have some lessons that we can learn. We can look at some real lived experiences to try to come somewhere to a point where we understand that anything that we do to set up a barrier is actually going to impact not just access, but then the person is really their health and the outcome. So thank you for that. I know the audience is probably saying, I thought this was a, uh, a dialogue a, a group about leadership. And so Danforth Dialogue is about leadership. So let's get to leadership. So you look back over your career. What would you say are one of the two leadership challenges that you face that might be helpful to others who want to follow your path? You know, there's so many um, things that I've had the the privilege to learn. I've learned so much from mentors, um, many strong women of watching them operate and uh, and really had that opportunity. I would say some of the lessons I've learned are how to find my voice. There were some um, incredible challenges, I think, that many of us faced. Um, I really felt uh, that during the COVID-19 pandemic, just some of the struggles I found of dealing with that, trying to do Zoom school with my <laughs> daughter, <laughs> the three of us all on Zoom, really worrying about my job. Would we be able to pay the mortgage? Um, and realizing that leaders don't always have the answers, you know, and just that personal struggle of I've got to find those answers within. For me, it's, you know, my faith, but really having to realize that not the answers aren't always out there, right? Sometimes it's drawing on your own strength, finding your own voice. I, like so many um, people of color, was really affected by George Floyd. And also, I feel like our some of our organization's inability to make the changes that that there was this brief moment where I think people saw um, we need to do something differently, but it felt like it didn't last the way it should have. And I think those were two areas where really helped me find my own personal voice of saying, you have to seize this moment and other leaders may not be up to the task. Did that help you to really embrace the health equity strategy? It did. I um, uh, became, a, I, I really feel like I changed through that that experience. I think between COVID um, and, and just seeing the inequities and how hard it is when you actually ask people to change their behavior, I've felt a completely different level of commitment of seeing how challenging it is um, and how motivated and commitment committed I am to, in this role, making the hard choices, even though that may mean that things change and to make sure that this is not a moment where we talk about health equity and then 10 years from now we're on to the next, but that we start embedding a real change in how we pay for care in our country is 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 definitely, I think, uh, I like to say that experience steeled my spine and gave me a clarity 
uh, of purpose um, that I hope that I've brought to my role as CMS administrator. I would tell you there were many of us cheering you on uh, and cheering CMS on because we have been talking about health equity and how do you air quotations, incentivize people to understand the benefits of incorporating strategies that were around equity because it would improve healthcare outcomes. And I will tell you, I think many organizations really uh, gave a sigh of relief that they didn't have to carry that banner anymore. So I would like to say thank you for uh, stealing your spine <laughs> you. and, 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 and doing that and finding your voice because I think it was very, very important. It will continue to be important. And so we hope that it is something that is going to be longstanding and sustainable because we do believe that if you look at strategies and initiatives that uh, really are tied to payment uh, around health equity, I think, and we can measure it, I think we will see improved outcomes. So thank you for that. Now, none of us like to admit when we fail, particularly on a national podcast, uh, and, and, but we can all talk about positive lessons. Can you give us an example where you may have not how about this, that maybe you performed suboptimally, not necessarily failed, uh, as a leader, and what that experience taught you? I definitely think that we have to, um, we have to learn from failure and, and not be afraid of it. Uh, and I would say I remember uh, very recently just, uh, and when you run a huge organization, People are doing things that aren't going to be right all the time, Ooh, right? No, not, not, I, not people. Not yes. people. <laughs> and, um, and I got this advice from um, one of my former bosses. And one of the things she said, which I have taken so to heart, is she was saying, you have to... Um, you have to create an environment where people can bring you problems because they'll wait as long as they possibly can. And if you don't have that environment, it's going to be so much harder for you to fix. Um, and she she really said, you've got to own the mistakes, whether, you know, basically whether you've done them or not. The, the focus is how do you fix it? And I think that... Um, while I'm not going to say that it was my fault, I was definitely there when um, uh, the the website didn't work at the start of the Affordable Care Act, Ooh, and it was yes, yeah. painful. Painful. It yeah. was a painful period of time, and uh, just so hard. So many people had been working for years, but there just hadn't been the full connections of um, of making sure that all the pieces fit together. What I learned through that process was how you have to keep focused on, you know, every day coming in and, all right, here are the list of challenges. How are we going to get through them methodically? We can't spend the time finger pointing and saying, this is what went wrong 10 years, you know, the early in the process. But what we did was after that process, and when I came in and started, I said, all right, everybody, it's 10 years later, let's talk about what happened, what went, what went wrong, what lessons. And I had all of our team do the, go through that process and then give those lessons to all of the senior team. We wrote them down. We said, this is what 
we wished had been done differently. These were the lessons, and this is how we're going to make sure that when we implement the new drug benefit, that we don't repeat these lessons, that we learn the lessons. When we implement the new Surprises Act, which is other legislation, when we implement all of these changes, that we want to keep track of um, of 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 these things that we've learned and not repeat the the lessons that some of us um, sometimes remember really late at night when uh, we can't sleep. And yeah. Well, it, it sounds like you have really been uh, listening to Nancy Pelosi because you talked about early on her stand focus, unified at the top, and focusing on the end goal. And so uh, keeping that and and using that uh, as sort of uh, a a stable a staple for you throughout your leadership. So as I mentioned earlier, you will be given the commencement address at Morehouse School of Medicine this year, and we are, we are taping this edition before that. Uh, but maybe you can give us a little preview on what you, one or two of the lessons you might tell our students. Well, I am so privileged to be here, and it's, it's really incredible right now because when I think about the workforce, how much we need to have um, providers who look like America, um, I'm and and policymakers who look like America, I'm I'm really excited to talk to the students, to wish them well and to tell them just by being them, they are um, gonna make a difference in health equity. What I want to most convey is how important it is to keep the person at the center of what we're doing, how challenging it can be to you get focused on the details, your own issues, the especially in the policy world, the big issues. And it's so easy to lose sight of um, of what's going on with people. But that's what I hear across the country when I talk to individuals. It's they're a whole person. It's making trade-offs between um, coming in and it's your knee that is a, has a problem, but really what you're stressed about is how are you going to pay the rent? And, and really understanding that we have to look at people holistically. Um, and so that's a little bit of what I want to convey. I also want to convey that they stand on the shoulders of their professors, um, their parents, their play aunts and uncles that may be in the audience, and just how much that I am who I am because of the people that came before me um, and and the relationships that I developed in college and graduate school. I mean, my my friends, my mentors, there, there are many people who knew me when. And so really understanding as well that um, you've already started your journey of your career here. Thank you. It has been a pleasure talking to you, Administrator Brooks O'Shore. Thank you for honoring us with your presence today on the Danforth Dialogues and being our 2023 commencement speakers. Our students will certainly receive a message that they can carry with them as they begin their professional lives. In closing, we always offer three thoughts on leadership. Our first thought today is that Great leaders take many roads to success, and sometimes just going straight ahead is the best path to follow. Administrator Brooks LaSure is a great example of this. Now, she came back and forth between the private and the public sector, but she found her heart and her passion in the public sector. 
She started out as this Medicare analyst of the Office of Management and Budget, but ended up heading the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. She's brought with her a unique perspective on a 20-plus year in the field and certainly has given the skills and experiences that she needs to run this organization. Second, great leaders never accept the status quo. They look to innovate, to take their organizations to new horizons. With over 6,000 employees, serving more than 65 million Medicare recipients and over 93 million Medicaid recipients. Administrator Brooks LaSure certainly has had enough to do to keep things operating, and we said, thank you. But she's looking to innovate, to find new and better ways for CMS to serve its constituents and the country. And finally, great leaders pay it forward. This administrator will do that this weekend at our commencement. She will share her life experiences and wisdom with the next generation of healthcare professionals, public health professionals, the biomedical scientists. Not everything she says will be of value to each of our graduates, but one thing she says will make a difference. And if just one of them finds success, even 25 years from now for something that you said, I know it will be impactful, so thank you. Thank you for joining us today for this edition of Danforth Dialogues. We hope you will tune in next month. As always, in closing, we wish you good health and great success in all that you do. This has been a presentation of Danforth Dialogues with Morehouse School of Medicine President and CEO, Dr. Valerie Montgomery Rice. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information, please contact us at Danforth Dialogues at msm.edu.